Well, as I prayed about which, which scripture to share today, I believe the Lord directed me to Isaiah 55. And that's one of my favorite Old Testament passages, along with Isaiah 53. And as you study these on your own, I encourage you to read these chapters 53, 54, and 55. They all really are part of the same message there. They share a united message. And verses 6 and 7 in Isaiah 55, where it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. We'll be talking about that today. But that is what, probably my most quoted passage in the Bible as I go out and witness to people, do outreach. Often I quote that passage because it's very appropriate. It relates to people no matter where they're at. If they're unsaved, it says, you know, turn to the Lord. If they are Christians, it's, it still admonishes us to, you know, turn from any sin in our lives, to seek him with all of our heart, and he will have mercy. It's a promise of mercy. So we're going to be looking at uh, Isaiah 55 here this morning. And uh, if you have your Bible, you can open to that passage. We're going to read it in sections and discuss it in sections. <clears throat> I see it uh, divided into three main sections. The first section is the messianic invitation. The messianic invitation, that's verses five, 1 to 5. 1 to 5. Then the next is the call to repentance, verses 6 to 11. And then thirdly, the overflowing blessing. That's the last two verses, verses 12 and 13. So we're going to look at each of these sections one at a time and talk about them. But let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. And we pray that today your word would speak for itself, that by your Holy Spirit you would take that word and drive it deeply into each one of our hearts and souls, Lord. Touch everyone, Lord. Each one might have a different need today. Each one might have a different area of our lives that we need to be uh, that we need exposure to your word, and so we pray that your word would penetrate. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first section is Isaiah 55, the first five verses. <clears throat> Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, Come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me, Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Amen. This is the invitation. 
And uh, we, I call it the messianic invitation. Now I'm going to explain that because this really presents the Messiah. It's an invitation to everybody. It says, everyone who thirsts. Everyone who thirsts. There's nobody too bad that they are not covered by God's grace. Are you glad of that? Nobody too bad that they're not covered by God's grace. And there's nobody too good that they don't need it. We have to remember that. There's nobody too good that they don't need God's grace. This passage reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We see the same free and abundant grace presented in these two invitations. Now, as we study this, we have to remember that the whole chapter here of Isaiah 55 is very poetic. It's written in poetry language. It uses a lot of images, a lot of comparisons. For example, it says waters. Come to the waters. Now, throughout the Bible, water is a symbol of spiritual life. Jesus declares in John chapter 7, he said, He who believes in me... As the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. That's John 7, 38. But it goes beyond the basics of just the water here in Isaiah 55. He also talks about wine and milk, the richest affair. He says, come, get something that is very high quality, something very nourishing, something very delightful. Come to me. And at the end of verse 2, it says, Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. God doesn't offer us something second class. He offers us the best. Now, I'm not saying that necessarily in the materialistic realm, but I'm saying in the spiritual realm, he gives us the best, the best, far better than somebody who might have millions of dollars in the bank. And it's all free. It's all free. Why? Because it's paid for by Jesus Christ. Our salvation is paid for by the Lord Jesus when he died on the cross, took our punishment. And everything else that flows from that, our divine healing, our our, uh, sanctification, all of the things that flow from that were paid for by Jesus. The fellowship we have with one another was all established by Jesus when he died on the cross and rose again. But the problem is that because of our human sinful nature, we tend to come up with cheap substitutes. We waste our time and resources on, what does it say here, what is not bread. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread? that's, That's a real indictment to our society today. Because they're spending their money, not only their money, but their time, their energy, sometimes their, their health and their very lives on what is not bread. Trying to satisfy 
that longing, but they're using cheap substitutes, the substitutes of this world. Now, for those who don't know God, that's all they know. But we have something better to offer people. And that's why we we should let people know what the Bible says here in Isaiah 55 and in, in the New Testament, how Jesus can provide us with something so much better than what this world can offer. So I ask the question, what are some of the things in your life that you have pursued that were cheap substitutes? I'm sure, I know we all can think of things that were cheap substitutes, sometimes even after we've been saved. <laughs> we've pursued things as if that was so all-important. Then later on we realize that really isn't so important at all. Then in verse 3, we see the words everlasting covenant and the phrase the sure mercies of David. Now it used to be as I read this chapter, I, I would come to those verses and I just kind of rush over them because I was thinking, well, what does David have to do with all of this? Uh, but I came to realize that the covenant spoken of here is the new covenant. This covenant is the new covenant that Jesus established, the one that's spoken of in Jeremiah chapter 31, where he says, I will make a new covenant. And the, in the very words of Jesus in Matthew twenty six twenty eight, when he says, the, my blood of the new covenant, when he instituted the, the Lord's Supper, he said, my, this is the, my blood of the new covenant, the new covenant that Jesus established through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And yes, it talks about David here. It's King David. King David in the Old Testament. Now, we've got to understand, David was dead when this was written. It was written, he, was, he had he lived several generations earlier. So it's not talking about David as if he were a man alive, because he wasn't. But it's talking about the promised Messiah. God promised to King David that his royal line would go on forever. That was specifically stated in 2 Samuel 7.16. The Lord spoke to David and said, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. It's very emphatic, very specific. How is that fulfilled? How can any earthly human line go on forever? Well, it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's fulfilled in him because he lives forever. And he reigns from the throne of David according to God's eternal promise. Now this falls right in line with the season, doesn't it? Because during this time of the year, we hear a lot about the promises of God, the coming of Jesus. Throughout the Advent and Christmas seasons, we hear about we hear David's name mentioned because the promised Messiah was born in the royal line of David. Even the Apostle Paul states in Romans 1.3 that the Lord Jesus was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So it was all part of God's plan, the plan of redemption. And therefore, what Isaiah 55 is celebrating is the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. And of course, now he has come. When Isaiah wrote these words, it was yet future. 
But now, praise God, Jesus has come. I want to point out that in verse 5, it says, Surely you shall call a nation you do not know. That word you there is in the singular. Now in verse 3, it's plural, because it's an invitation to all of us to come, to come to Jesus. But in verse 5, it's, it changes to the singular because it's addressed to the Messiah himself. You shall call a nation you do not know. People that, that were estranged from Christ from all the, over the world are coming to Jesus today. Who were in spiritual darkness are coming to, to the light of the gospel. This scripture is being fulfilled. Praise God. And then in verse 6, we move into the second section, the call to repentance. That's based upon God's offer, his free offer of grace that we've seen in verses 1 to 5. The offer, offer of grace, mercy, salvation, it's all free. But this passage is both an invitation and a warning. Because the offer must be received. We have the ability to reject, to ignore God's offer. God's offer must be received. Now before we move on into this uh, passage, I want to point out, I mentioned the poetry. This, the, the prophets wrote in poetic form for the most part. And that's what we see here in Isaiah 55. And <clears throat> we see uh, something called Hebrew parallelism. They wrote in parallel thoughts. That was the, the rhythm of Hebrew poetry. For example, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. It's saying something very similar. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. It's very similar, a little different. A little different. That's how they expressed that's how the Holy Spirit used the prophets to express the truth in this form of parallelism. So we'll see that here uh, a number of times in this passage. Now, as I stated, this is both an invitation and a warning. God gives us a window of opportunity, and it is not permanently open. That should be stressed because Sometimes people hear about the grace of God and they say, well, that's wonderful. But they don't appropriate it for themselves. We need to, to receive his invitation while we have the opportunity. There comes a time when God cannot be found. There comes a time when he, is not, when he will not be near. That's why we must seek him now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now, when, when does it come when God cannot be found? Well, certainly after death. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So don't put off repentance. You, know, you may be hearing this message today and you don't really know if, you, if you're saved. Come to Jesus now. Settle that issue. Turn from sin, as we're reading here. Turn from your sins and come to Jesus. I've heard the saying, 
Many who wait until the 11th hour to be saved die at 10.30. Many who wait until the 11th hour to be saved die at 10.30. We have no guarantee of tomorrow. We have only today, only now. But even before we die, we can lose the opportunity. I often heard, used to hear Billy, excuse me, Billy Graham say that we can only come to Christ when the Holy Spirit is drawing us. We must not presume and say, well, I've got, you know, a lot of opportunity, a lot of time to come to Christ. There's no guarantee. We can only come when the Holy Spirit is drawing us so that even though we may live to a ripe old age, there's a danger in hardening our hearts. When the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, that's the time to come, to come to the Lord. If we harden our hearts, it just makes it more and more difficult, I believe, for the Holy Spirit to get through to us. So there's a danger in hardening our hearts. As it says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Verse 7 is, I believe, a beautiful picture of repentance. Now, that's a word you don't hear very much, except in church. But even in church, I think a lot of people don't know what it means. I think it's a very word that's not very well understood, repent. Well, what does that mean? Uh, Sometimes we just have the, the idea that it means to be sorry, to feel sorrow for our sins. Well, that's part of it. Feeling sorry is part of repentance. I believe there is an emotional uh, dimension to repentance, but it's more than that. It's a turning. It's, the word literally means to ch- change our mind, to turning from sin and to the Lord. And that's what, we're, that's what we see here in, in verse 7. I believe it's one of the most complete biblical statements of repentance. Let me read it again. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So there's, again we see the parallelism there. Let the wicked forsake his way, his behavior, you could say, his actions. And the unrighteous man, his Thoughts. Well, it goes a little deeper than just our actions. That's very vital for us to see here. He's not just saying, amend your behavior. Because, you know, psychologists can do that. But I believe, you know, somebody can quit smoking and even quit drugs without, without knowing Jesus. They can change their behavior. There are certain techniques that people can use to change their behavior, but yet their heart is still unconverted. That's why we need to preach Christ. And we need to recognize ourselves that we need the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior from sin. It's not just changing our behavior. Now, on the other hand, some people say, well, I'm saved. I've got Jesus in my heart. But there's no change in their behavior. And that shows that they're deceived. We need to really repent, turn from our sins, which will involve a deep, deep conversion and also then 
a subsequent change in the way that we live. Both are a necessary part of true repentance. And it's not only the negative, not only what we turn from, but praise God, there's the positive. And most of verse 7 is devoted to that. It says, let him return to the Lord. We're not only turning away from sin. I mean, that would be a sad thing if God just said, turn away from sin. Just leave it at that. But he says, no, come to me. Come to me and I will pardon you. I will forgive you. I will show mercy or compassion to you. So it's not only the negative but the positive. We come to God with an expectation of mercy and pardon. Repentance and faith always go together. I was like to call them the twin sisters or two sides of the same coin. Repentance, if true repentance will always involve faith and true faith always involves repentance. And then the Lord puts us in our place. Reading verses 8 and 9 again, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's very humbling, isn't it? It reminds us that even our minds are fallen, affected by sin. We need a total makeover. And just the time when we think, well, I'm pretty sanctified right now. I've come a long ways. God shows us. God shows us some deep area of our lives where we still need a a makeover. We still need him to come by his Holy Spirit and his word and probe deeply into our hearts and change us from the inside. And as we think about what God is saying to us here, I think we realize two things. First, our sin is greater and deeper than we imagine. And also his grace is also greater and more vast than we've ever understood. The more we understand our own depravity, our own sin, the greater we appreciate his grace in our lives. So yes, we need a transformation. And God has a way of bringing it about through his word, through his word. In these following verses here, it gives a beautiful word picture, a beautiful imagery using the images of rain and snow. And what they accomplish. What does it say here? For as the rain comes down, verse 10, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word, oh, so, so shall be my word that, that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word. God's word goes forth. And he uses the image of the snow and the rain coming down from from heaven. We see that in the regular cycle of nature. God sends the, the rain. God in his mercy 
has sent the rain to nourish the plants so that the crops will grow, that the crops will bring forth what was barley and wheat and olives and grapes. The, the people of Isaiah's day knew what he was talking about. Without the rain, they wouldn't have these crops. They couldn't survive so that there would be bread for the eater. I think this shows us that the ultimate purpose you know, in our lives is that we can feed others. God changes our lives so that we can bring wholesomeness to others through our lives. God says that his word will not return to him void. Now that's a very reassuring promise. That God's word will not return void. It's the word of God, after all. It's the word of God. These verses are worth meditating upon, and I hope that you will take them with you. And that in this week ahead, that you will really meditate upon what the Lord is saying here. God's word will do its work. We are reminded of this at this season of the year through the Christmas story. It reminds us that God's word will do its work. God is going to fulfill his will. God's promises regarding the birth of the Messiah were fulfilled despite some very huge hindrances. Look at the Christmas story. As we read about Joseph, his misgivings. You know, at first he thought that Mary had been unfaithful to him, and he said, let's forget this whole thing. Let's forget this, this marriage we're supposed to have. And God had to, had to intervene and show Joseph, no, this is of me. And then Joseph and Mary's poverty. I mean, that didn't make it easy for them to have the baby Jesus. It was something you could say was working against them. But yet, in spite of their poverty, God worked it out. God worked it out that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem through his divine providence, using the decree of the Roman emperor to make that happen, to fulfill the scriptures. And then they found that there was no room in the inn. That was another obstacle. How is the baby going to be born? How is he going to survive? God made a way. God made a way that Jesus was born and was healthy. And then the, the, the jealousy of King Herod, who wanted to exterminate him. We see the, the diabolical hatred of this man who even recognized that the, the, the Messiah has been born. <laughs> even recognizing that fact, he still wanted to kill him. And even though many babies were killed at that time, tragically, Jesus survived. God was watching over his word. And what does the prophet Isaiah tell us earlier in chapter 9 concerning the Messiah? He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Then down near the, farther down in that chapter, it says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts, Lord of hosts will perform it. And that's what we've seen in the Christmas story, that God's purposes were established. And despite all of the earthly obstacles and hindrances, God fulfilled his will. Jesus came. Jesus lived. Jesus 
taught and performed his miracles, and ultimately he went to the cross for us. We see all kinds of hindrances there too. The devil tried to to make that happen, and, and, and Jesus rose from the dead, the greatest miracle of all. God was fulfilling his word. God watches over his word. He watched over his word then, and he continues to do so. Praise God. That's a reassurance for us. God continues to watch over his word. Now, the last section in this chapter is the final two verses, 12 and 13. I call it the overflowing blessing. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. I believe that verse 12 is a picture of lives set free in Jesus Christ. It says that you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. That phrase, go out with joy and be led out, as I was reading about that, I came into some new insight. I always used to think of that as you know, kind of leading a, an animal out, like leading out the calves or the goats, leading them out, you know, be led out with peace into the pasture, which it may refer to. But uh, in one commentary, I was reading that that could also refer to the children of Israel being led out of the land of Egypt and later led out of captivity in Babylon. God led them out. But either way, it's a beautiful picture of how God leads us out of the captivity of sin. God leads us out into pastures of plenty, uh, pastures of life. And in verse 13, the last verse, we see that the curse is reversed. Remember, God told Adam that because of his disobedience, he would have to face thorns, briars, and things that would make life awfully hard for him. But here, in a very poetic way, God says, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. Things of beauty, things of just the opposite of thorns. Now in all of this, we can see the coming of the Messiah, his atoning death and his resurrection, in the call to repentance and the transformation of the repentant sinner. All of this is for the glory of God of God. All of it is for God's glory. God works in our lives. He saves us. He has made the way through the death of Jesus and his resurrection that we can pass from death unto life, not only in this life, but for all eternity. We can 
come to Christ. All of these things he does for his glory. His glory is always for our good. When we, when we turn to him in repentance. I think it's in the Westminster Confession. It says, the chief end of man, there'll be women too, the chief end of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's so true. And we see that in the, these, this final verse here, in the last two lines. It says, and it shall be to the Lord, that's Yahweh, Jehovah, it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Shall not be cut off. God's purposes are sure and eternal. So I ask the question today, are you aligned with God's purposes in your life? Some who are hearing me at this time may not, may not have ever really come to Jesus. Come to him now that you can align yourself with God's purposes. Or maybe you do know the Lord, but you need a little bit of realignment, a little bit of realignment deep in your heart. Let the Holy Spirit do his work in your life today so that God's name will be glorified, his purposes will be accomplished in your life.